broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. That is Jordan. And that over there is Carlin. Yes. And today we are going to be talking about one of my selections. Yes, it is a, a little film called Chinatown from yes. 1974. Yes. Um, and the Netflix summary reads as follows. With his suspicious femme fatale bankrolling his snooping, Private Eye J.J. Giddies uncovers intricate dirty dealings in the Los Angeles waterworks. Yes, he does. Dun, yes, dun, he does. Dun. Well, this is, um, just to let everyone know, this is probably the earliest we've ever recorded. Yeah, it's like 11 in the morning, so it's not exactly <laughs> an, a movie night. No, but, but you may listen to it at night. You may listen to it whenever you feel like it's a good idea. Well, so, because it's on the earlier side for, for us, we um, we are sipping on some coffee yes. while um, we do this. What What's actually, what's the blend that you selected for today? Uh, it's Las Milpas. It is a um, coffee, I believe, from Mexico, and it is uh, from Counterculture mm -hmm. Coffee. And they do really good stuff. It's all organic, uh, fair trade. Not free trade, free trade bad, fair trade good. Um, they make phenomenal, phenomenal coffee. They find very small batches right. around the world and um, pay fair wages to the people who work the coffee fields and uh, yeah i've been a, i've been a, i've been a fan of the fair trade co concept now for eight or nine years and it's really it's really great when you can do it because then you you know that you're you're not making a more of a problem in the in the world for other people than yourself but it's good to know that the product you're purchasing the people who put their time into it were fairly compensated right now, someone who wasn't fairly compensated in this movie <laughs> was Jack Nicholson's was Jack character. Nic well, well, Jack Nicholson's nose. Oh um, yes, but uh, no, I was I was thinking of the actual people in the county who were having their land purchased. Yeah, yeah, because that was going on because there was there was some shady dealings that was going on with the valley, just north of Los Angeles, but. That's a little bit later on in the movie. Let's go ahead and talk about um, the, the breakdown of the actors, directors, that all that good stuff. So, as Carlin mentioned earlier, this movie was made in 1974. Um, it actually stars Jack Nicholson as J.J. Giddies. He, he also likes to be called Jake by people who are closer to him. Which is like everybody yeah. he, he runs into. Pretty much. He, he's like, I don't even know why he uses J.J., as, yeah. like, an official moniker. He should have just go by Jacob Giddies. It really is ridiculous because I felt, like, watching this, that every single person he came into contact, they were like, oh, hey, Giddies or Jake or whatever. And right. I was just like, he knows, like, every single person in the in town. town. Well, well, at that time in the 1930s when the movie is set, Los Angeles was a much smaller town. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and also, like he says in the he says in the actual movie that it's a it's a small town and he knows pretty much everybody. Also, his character had been a former police officer. So, working that part of, you know, working law enforcement in a small town, 
I'm sure you're going to get to know a lot of people, especially a lot of public officials. Right. So Jack Nicholson, of course, has been in pretty much everything. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you don't know who we're talking about when we say Jack Nicholson, shame on you. Yeah. I mean, some of his more famous roles include One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest, The Shining. Yes, The Shining. The Shining. That's a great movie. I didn't like it. <sighs> okay, well then, for that reason, I'm going to have to choose it as one of my picks, <laughs> if and when it's available on streaming. Yeah, I, I, I really didn't like The Shining. I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that once we actually get a chance. Another, movies that he, another movie that he did, I actually wrote down three movies that I did not like for my selections. Oh, perfect. Um, uh, for Jack Nicholson. Uh, Easy Rider. He, he was an Easy Rider. Um, a, a smaller role in that, but that movie is just messed up. I don't I don't see what everybody else sees in it. And then he was also in Mars Attacks. Oh, God. So, he was in so much better stuff than yes, that. Yes, he was. He was. I mean, Batman was so much better than mm. any of those movies. Oh, I loved his Joker in the first Batman. Yes. He did a phenomenal job with that. Yes. But that's more of like a comedic mm-hmm. Joker, less serious like Heath Ledger did. So. Right. Well, at, at, at the time, in the mid-80s, when that movie was made, I mean, comic books change so much. And people don't, mm-hmm. they think of, when they think of four-color action heroes, they only think of, like, stuff from the 60s and 70s. But really, the 80s, the 90s, each decade has its own particular feel to comics. So, anyway, um, as the Avengers proved, I can talk about that all day long. Um, another another actor actress who was in this movie was Faye Dunaway, as Evelyn Cross Mulway. She's been in a bunch of stuff too. Yeah, I I immediately uh, recognized her face. Yes. Uh, well, an older version of her since you know I'm much younger than. Right, right, right. Than the yeah. the uh, viewing audience of the mid seventies. Yeah. Um, but she was, she, you know, this was interesting. She was in both the nineteen sixty eight. And the 1999 version, uh, uh, remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. Oh, wow. So she was in both of those movies. Which that I doesn't thought. happen often. No, it doesn't. Remakes. It doesn't. Um, uh, some other movies that she's been in it is uh, the Fantastic Movie Network. If you haven't seen have Network, not, oh my goodness. I'll that's have to. That's a classic of what is wrong with the media. Um, and it actually came out right around the same time as Chinatown. So it's got a, a lot of really interesting stuff going on there from a mid-70s perspective. Uh, another movie that she's been in, Voyage of the Damned, uh, which is a, a classic horror movie. And then uh, The Handmaid's Tale as well, which was an adaptation of a novel from one of my favorite authors, um, Margaret Atwood. And then also someone we we recently encountered on the pad, podcast, uh, Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night as a director John Huston John Huston well he also did writing he yeah. was one of he was the screenplay he wrote the screenplay for the African Queen yes he did um, and I was just looking through IMDB when the film was starting when I was watching it mm-hmm. and I saw John Huston as soon as I saw the name John Huston I was like is this the same John Huston that wrote that did the screenplay yeah. for the African Queen and, and he also directed the African Queen did he yeah I Thought it was someone different. I, I guess I think he was. I think it was. Man, we didn't do that one that long ago, so yeah. I'm losing it. Uh, he also directed the Maltese Falcon. Oh wow! Um, okay. So him and Bogart have worked together pretty closely, um, and also um, just as a humorous side note, he directed something called the Night of the Iguana. Sounds. 
kitschy. Yeah, I. You know what? It sounds like my kind of movie. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the kind of movie I would like to watch with other people. Right. I don't think I watched that one on my own. Um, as an actor, he never was really very happy with his acting career. In fact, he said that Chinatown was probably his best work. Um, and but he's he did um, a lot of roles later in life. He was in the movie Dasad, um, which okay. is now on Netflix. Um, he was also in one of the Planet of the Apes franchise movies, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And then he was also um, well known for young, younger people, uh, younger generation of people, uh, for starring in the Rankin Basses, uh, The Hobbit as Gandalf. Oh, really? Yeah, he was the voice of Gandalf in the, um, cool. the Rankin Bass uh, cartoon version of The Hobbit. So, so this guy's all over the map. Yeah, he's been all over the place. And I will say in um, Chinatown, he looked, his character, he looked a lot like, are you familiar with Doyle Brunson? Not really. Very famous poker player, mm. uh, Texas Hold'em poker player, like one of the most prominent. So anyone out there who knows, you know, about Texas Hold'em poker, if I say Doyle Brunson, you'll know Doyle Brunson. And he looked kind of like Doyle Brunson in this film. Well, he does have a, he does have a certain flair that he's trying to portray in this movie mm-hmm. as the uh, kind of wealthy country gentleman um, living out in his hacienda yeah. and everything like that. He even had like the sash. Like, he has the, the sash Mexican going on and everything. Is, like, it's pretty awesome. Um, unlike the other noir movie that we've done, Double Indemnity, this movie um, from the 70s was actually shot in color. You know, yeah. Double Indemnity was black and white, and we, we both enjoyed Double Indemnity's uh, qualities of black and white. But a lot of the same noir aspects with the shadow and everything translated fairly well into color here in Chinatown as well. So with noir films, yes, is it mandatory, because I'm not extremely familiar with it, um, is it mandatory that things do not end well? Yeah, I mean, it is It is a genre where tragedy is the main, is the mainstream. I mean... Thinking of other classics like The Postman Always Rings Twice and and uh, The Maltese Falcon and everything like that. All of those movies end with some kind of bizarre twist or some sort of tragic ends. Postman Always Rings Twice, I think the, the narrator of the story is on death row. Typically it's a, a, a tale, a tragic tale of, of, of scum and villainy gone awry. Yeah. I mean, it just seems more relatable style. It's like a kind of a detective procedural. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is it mandatory to always have uh, the main character bed one of the lady folk from the film in film noir? Because thus far, Double Indemnity and uh, Chinatown, yes. They're both very busy. Um, I don't I don't know if it's necessarily a requirement. I mean, Brick is a modern noir movie. Mm-hmm. Um, starring a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Great movie. It's a great movie. I can't remember, like, in that one, him particularly getting busy with any of the high school girls. Well, no, probably because it was because that age Because it was that range. age range. But, I mean, that that is a very common theme. Uh, because noir does... It's a, it's a movie... Noir is French for black. So mm-hmm. it's like looking at the darker aspects of the world... And a lot of times it's the greed and selfishness that can come about from having an affair or, you know, just putting yourself above everybody else and being and being willing to use other people. It's really the seedy underbelly of society. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> Done by rich people. Done by rich people. Pretty yeah. much always. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, 
The thing is, though, that rich is a subjective term. Right. Well-to-do. Well-to-do. People who, people who are, are comfortable enough mm-hmm. to try and, and, and push harder for something that they want. Uh, one, of the, one of the... Well, there are a few things I wanted to point out about this film in the beginning. Uh, one, it was uh, nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Yes. So that's huge. Yeah, it was. It, it blew up. It was big. Not that I care about the Academy Awards, really, but I just think some people might. Well, I mean, so. I think they're I think they're more of a popularity contest than anything. Well, it's within the, the industry itself, yeah, it, it, so it's kind of like right. They're just hyping up their own stuff, right? Oh, this person does a great job, you know, or this person does a great job. I I I think honestly, I take more stock in like awards given out by film festivals than have like an actual jury, right? You know, because then. They're looking at it objectively rather than, oh, well, this is my buddy who, who, you know, has helped me out in other projects. I want them to win so that they, they, they nominate them really young. Someone we didn't mention was Roman Polanski. And we really kind of need to talk about Roman Polanski in the, in the grand scheme of this movie. Yeah. Um, he is the director. Um, and, of course, he's known for most famously directing... Uh, Rosemary's Baby. Um, he also did The Pianist more recently and The Ghostwriter in 2010. So he's still active. Um, he's not filming here in the States because of extradition laws and uh, <laughs> an outstanding warrant for his arrest, but uh, yeah, he's still active in the, in the filmmaking community. His life was so crazy. Um... He had raped a 13-year-old, which is why he was, had been arrested and was put on trial. And exactly. Then, then he escaped before he was going to be sentenced, and uh, he has not come back to the United States since because of that. Um, meanwhile, though, he, he's made outstanding films, but also another crazy aspect of his life is his wife was Sharon Tate, who was murdered by the Manson family, right. and she was pregnant when that when happened. That happened. So, he's had unfortunate things in his life, and then he's done things that are terrible. You know, I, I, think, I think one of the things that we can say right off the bat is that someone might make good art, but they're not necessarily a good person. Correct. You know, and then and, there's the opposite. There and are then there are people who are great. Do a terrible job, but yeah. they're such great people. Yeah, exactly. Like, who knows? Panos Cosmatos, who did Beyond the Black Rainbow... You know, we trash that film, but he may be a hell of a guy. He may be, like, if I met him in person, I might be like, I want to be this guy's best friend. Right, exactly. You, you just never know. I mean, uh, the thing is that, that genius doesn't always strike people who are the most deserving, shall we say? The most socially... Um, Acceptable. Yeah. You know, I and and the thing is though that like you said, he's he's had a lot of tragedy in his life, and he's also had a lot of scumbaggery. Yeah, or if you or, will. or very nasty and squeamish things that he's done in his life. So, as a director for a noir movie or a horror movie, um, and a, like Rosemary's Baby, he's kind of kind of got the market cornered for life experience to draw from. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. But anyway. Let's go ahead and talk about the movie. Well, real, real quick. Um, there was a guy who played a butler, who played Evelyn's butler. Oh, yeah, Khan. Uh, no, yeah, James Hong. Yes. 
And when I saw him, I was like, oh my gosh, I've seen that guy in a lot of things, I Mm -hmm. feel like. He was in Safe that we reviewed. Oh, that's right. He was the older guy. Yes. Yeah, and he was also the the voice of the goose in Kung Fu Panda. He's done a lot of voice stuff. Yeah. For video games as well. Just tons. But look him up. uh, James Hong, he has 387 IMDb credits. And that's between films television shows, and video game voiceovers. Yeah. Um, God, that guy's busy. I think that's the definition of a character actor. Yeah. You yeah. know, that he's no, able to go in and, and do a lot of work. You might not necessarily know his name as an A-list, but he's he's taking care of business. Yeah. You know, and he's getting a lot of film credits and screen credits. and um, so it, good for him. I, I, yeah, good for him. I liked him in this role, personally. I thought I he, he, was, did a good job. he did a good job. Didn't get a lot of screen time, but... Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to bring up was the uh, the writer of the script, Robert Town. He ma- it mainly looked like from his IMDb credits that he adapts material. He just writes screenplays. Right, right, right. Doesn't come up with a whole lot of original stuff. But this was an original piece for him, and he had done a few others which looked like they were in the same vein. But some of the screenplays he's done that people definitely know. He did the first two Mission Impossible screenplays. Right. It should also be mentioned that Chinatown does have a sequel that was directed by Jack Nicholson himself. Really? Uh, yeah, it was the 1999 movie The Two Jakes. Huh. Um, and that one... Uh, it might be worth looking into. It might be looking worth... It might be worth looking into, but as your reaction shows, it's not very well known. Um, there, it was supposed to actually be... There was actually a proposed trilogy... Hmm. With Chinatown and the Two Jakes, but they never completed the tr- the, the actual trilogy. Well, well, maybe Roman Polanski will come back to the United States and do it. Eh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he won't. Yeah. All right, the actual film, then. Yes. Um, there's a lot to like about this movie, uh, just straight off the bat. Um, for, first and foremost is, like, how grounded in reality it is, mm-hmm. you know, because the movie starts off as talking a lot about how it's a hot summer there's a drought going on in los angeles it's the mid-1930s the los angeles hasn't kicked off the way that we think of los angeles as the big booming town that it is today so um so it's really cool to see how people are arguing i love the scene in the very beginning of the movie where they're in city hall and, and someone brings sheep in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they're they're arguing about whether or not this these reservoirs and this dam should be uh, built. Um, you know, and this is a real life problem. They're yeah. living in the middle of a desert, and they're trying to figure out how are we going to get enough water for our, right. for our population to survive with. So a guy who has sheep just herds all of his sheep into the courtroom. Well, it was a protest move yeah. because he he was... Well, he was yelling. He was like, you know, where are my sheep supposed to graze? You right, know, we, exactly. There's there's nothing green for them to eat now because we are having a drought, and then you're going to m- build this, you know, this monstrosity, and Typical it's California not going to bring the water. But, I mean, it, it, it's also interesting because the, the reason that we're, we're introduced to this scene is because Giddies gets a call from a lady who says that she is the wife of one Hollis Mulray and she thinks that Hollis is sneaking around with another woman. Dun-dun, yeah. Which, by the way, it seems... They they let you know right off the bat in the film 
um, not by saying it straight up, but by showing that Giddis mainly just deals with adultery situations. Well, that's actually the primary primary job of any private investigator. Right. Because it, the way it starts is he's showing photos of a woman in coitus with another guy uh, to the husband. And he, you know, is distraught and then he has to leave because yeah. their time's up. Yeah, and the husband's a freelance commercial fisherman named Curly. Yeah. He was a he was yeah, actually he's an interesting character. Yeah. So then this this lady comes in and she's like, you know, I'm the wife of Hollis Mulray. So then w- when she's giving her issue, I, I was like, oh, okay. So he just deals with adultery, which they did a very good job of establishing that first thing right. without beating people over the head. Like you you had to figure it out a little bit yourself, but it's it wasn't too tough and it wasn't too obvious. Well, and it also it was. I thought I thought that Nicholson does a great job in the opening of the movie. This is one of the few movies I actually like Nicholson in. Um, because one of your big issues with him is he just plays himself pretty he, much all he, the time. He pretty much plays you know, um, he pretty much plays a type and just yeah. accentuates different aspects of his personality. Um, it's like Joe Pesci. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, pretty much every actor does that, but mm-hmm. I always have felt that Nicholson does it a little bit too pointedly mm-hmm. you know and um th- but the thing is great here is because when um mrs mulray we'll call her that just for the moment um when she's in his office complaining about how her husband is cheating and money is no object and everything like that um he just he's he's just going through the motions at this point he's like oh no really yeah he really not only did he kind of seem to not really care that much because it seemed so routine to him. Right. But there was a lot of time when he's in his office that he's just kicking back. Yeah. Like he's sitting in a comfy chair with the newspaper open, just reading away with a fan blowing on him in the back. You know, it might actually look like he's not doing anything, but that really is an important part of a private investigator's job, uh, keeping it track of the news. How do I get this job? Uh, <laughs> you, you, can, you can get licensed. I actually, uh, a friend of mine... Um, that I used to work with was a licensed private investigator in Delaware. Really? Yeah, and he would actually... Well, you can... F- it's not hard to find people in Delaware. Yeah, no. Well, <laughs> one of his big jobs that he was telling me about was he would um, actually serve subpoenas. Okay. Yeah. You know, so... Um, so people hate him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was telling me all these crazy stories about how, like, if people would, wouldn't open up the door and some sometimes some people took pot shots at him and everything... Jeez. And and he'd have to get the cop. And one time he was like, he got really angry with a guy who was just refu- like trying to be really aggressive with him. He just finally, you know, does the stereotypical slam the paperwork into his chest and goes, you've been served, and then walked away. <laughs> I bet it felt kind of good. I, it, it did. It, the like, way yeah. he told the story, it was like... It's just like in a movie. It, almost. it was a highlight of his private investigating career. Um, but but it, private, it was really interesting... Um, how he was just going through the motions, and he did—he didn't actually do a lot of the work himself. He had two or three operatives who he would send out to follow the philanderers, and he mm-hmm. would take picture, ha- have someone else take the pictures and everything. So pretty much all that Giddies did was meet with the clients, set up the contract, and then let his actual private investigators do the work. Um, and that's. Got- he got pretty interested in this personally, though. Yeah, he did. Um, this one, 
he actually starts following Mulray around himself. I'm not sure if this is because Mulray is a public official, so he sees more um, more chance for a uh, income. Well, because he does get bonuses if he right. if he finds like real leads, real leads and everything. Um, but he also, once he starts digging into it, he finds that Mulray is meeting a young lady and taking her boating. Um, he also spends a lot of time down at the oceans, just looking at the water. And he also spends a lot of time going to this girl's apartment that they find out is actually in his name. Yeah, and that kind of sets it up for people to believe, oh, he is cheating. That That is not, what's going on. Here. Not only is he cheating, but he's keeping his mistress in a love nest. Mm. So, very salacious. Do you know who would like to hear about this? The newspapers. Of course. So, J.J. Giddies... Um, Call TMZ. Yeah, he, 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 uh, he calls up the L.A. Times, gives them the scoop, and um, gives them the photographs, too. He, yeah. he pretty much hangs uh, Mulray out to dry. And then who should walk into his office? Case closed. Everything is done. Mulray's actual wife. Mulray's actual wife. Which is kind of crazy moment because you're like, wait a second. You're kind of confused for a minute. You're like, is this is this his actual wife? Right. In which case, who was that before? Or is this an imposter and the other one was the real wife? Well, but in due time, that is right. And the sorted. the first one, the 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 first person who comes in to hire Geddes is very much a floozy. She's not well put right. together. Well, she she eventually talks to him later and says she's a working girl. Right now, is that a prostitute? Is what I was assuming. Yes, I was like, I don't want to assume too much, but yes. when I hear working girl, I think prostitute. Yes. Um. So. Not that I've heard it that much. And never in real life. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I left, I'm glad I left that, that <laughs> my thought hanging for a second so you felt awkward enough to go ahead and throw that in there. Um, but m- when Faye Dunaway shows up on screen, you immediately get the, the idea, oh, wait, this is someone of sophistication. You know, The it, way she carries herself. The way she carries there, herself. There's an air to yeah. her. Yeah. And... And then it's really kind of cemented into place when um, Geddes goes to Mulray's house to try and apologize and try and work things out. He actually, he sees a way to make this into an even better business deal. Because he's like, well, somebody wants you in trouble. So I can help you find out who that person is. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> And this is great because... Well, um, that's after, the, after Mulray's found dead too, right? No, I don't believe I so. It was no, because if I remember correctly, he shows up at her house. He's he's been trying to find him to apologize and to work out this deal. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes to the waterworks. He doesn't. He doesn't actually meet meet Mulray at the waterworks. He actually meets he meets Yelburton, who's the associate yeah. of the the vice chair of the water department. Who's also a shady individual. Yes, it, he is. I, um, I feel like everybody in this, in this movie is shady. Yeah, everybody. I, I have written down here like shady guy, scuzzy. You know, <laughs> he's he's a pain in the pain in the butt. You know, but Mulray, Mulray is 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 out of the office. He's pretty much dodging everybody at this point. Uh, he can't be found at the apartment. He can't be found at at his house and everything. And um, so what happens is. Um, Mulray sits down and tries to explain 
No, not Mulroy. Uh, Geddes sits down and tries to explain to Evelyn that he's going to go ahead and look at, into who was trying to hire him to blackmail uh, Mulroy. And this is a bit of an awkward thing because she's come and leveled a lawsuit against him. Yeah. And so she's like, okay, fine. You know what? Just just forget this whole thing ever happened. I'll drop the lawsuit. And he's like, no, I, I really feel like I should look into this. So he starts looking into it, going to reservoirs to see if he can track down Mulray. And that's when he finds out that Mulray is okay, dead. Gotcha. Because, because he's there when they pull his body out of the reservoir. Mm-hmm. And when, once that happens, then he's at the coroner's when Evelyn goes to identify the body. And then she tells... She lies and tells the coroner and the police that Giddis was there on her behalf. Mm-hmm. And then once, once she, while she's driving away, she's like, I'll send you a check so it's official that I've actually hired you. Yeah. And on the topic of the, the coroner and the police, the police are a bunch of asses. Like, they just act like jerks the whole well, time. Well, I think, I think... I think it's it's mainly because you don't really see them interacting with anyone but, but Giddis. Giddis. And they have a history with him. Yeah, Giddis was on the police department, and from what it sounds like, he was actually fired because someone in his protection got killed. Yeah. Um, and so, so they don't have a good. No, they don't have a good with relationship with him. And also, the cop that he's working with, Lieutenant Escobar, mm-hmm. is actually his former partner. It seems like in the movie, and the and the the intimation is that Escobar pretty much hates him. Yeah, and then that. Tr- trickles down to his current partner then who just acts even more like a jerk. There was actually a really good exchange between he and Giddis um, where, you know, at one point Giddis gets his nose uh, cut. Do you know who it is who get, cuts yeah, his nose? Roman Polanski. It is. Yeah. He, he's uh, credited in IMDb as a guy with knife. Yeah. Yeah, he's never given a name or anything. He, he's like this little gangster type. Yeah, a little midget. I yeah, think is what he calls him Giddis a midget. <laughs> And he, he sticks the knife like up his nose and then just flicks it outward and cuts his nose open. So he's got this cut nose and um, the Escobar's partner makes a comment to him about the nose at one point. And I forget what he says, but I did write down what Giddis said in response. He said, oh, your wife got a little too excited, crossed her legs too fast. Know what I mean? Yeah, that was the partner. Yeah. The par- <laughs> yeah. And then they tried to have fisticuffs. Yeah. <laughs> and Escobar right has to break them up. Uh, but the, the, the funny thing about... Th- about the knife, um, not not to detract from Escobar, but the knife was a real knife. Yeah, it looked like it. Oh yeah, and the thing was that one side would have actually cut 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 his nose, and the other side was was the fake side. So oh. it depended on how he would do it. But Polanski, in the middle of the take, whenever they were, were taking that and he stuck it up the nose, would flip it around inside his nose. So Nicholson never knew. If it was really going to cut his nose, or if it was actually going to be the the fake side, is that a te- was that a technique for him to try and get a no. realistic reaction out it, of him, or was he just an a hole? There, the tensions between Nicholson and Polanski were actually very high during the shooting of the movie. They did not like each other at all. That's never good. No, so so in part it was a technique, but in part it was also Polanski just being a real jerk. Like we said, not a good person. So when you're when you're looking at when you're looking at Nicholson and you see the fear on his face, it's real because he's not sure if he's actually going to get cut or not. Interesting. Um, so that that was it's a good uh, behind the scenes story. Yeah, there. yeah. It. Um, I actually I had to look that up because um, I had heard that 
that what Polanski and Nicholson both told everybody was that what happened on screen was that his nose was actually cut, but it was actually a special effect. It looked real. It did. It was very well it done. Did. It was a really great practical effect. And it really was the only practical effect or special effect in the movie it was. that was worth noting. Um, so it's it's really interesting to mention that type of thing. So I was also then going to talk about the coroner. The yes. coroner made me kind of laugh because he seemed like he does not care at all. Nope. About anything. He was the most, like, nonchalant. And it, it seemed to me like he didn't even really want to get to the bottom of, of what really killed the people he was dissecting. He, yeah, he was just like, oh, yeah, this one died. Yeah, that one died. Yeah, he's like, well, they they were talking in, in um, reference to Mulray, and he was just like, oh, yeah, he just, you know. Oh, no, the drunk. There yeah, was another guy who, who had drowned who was, like, a, a local drunk. And um, he said, oh, yeah, he drowned in, you know, whatever. In the river. Yeah, and then um, Giddis was basically like, there's barely any water in there usually. And he's like, hey, whatever. It doesn't take a You know, a it's just like, I don't care. Right, well, and the, the, the thing that was, that was happening was that this drunk was living under the bridge um, over the L.A. River. It even had like, a, um, like a, a chest of drawers down there, according to what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the, what what had happened was he had fallen asleep in the riverbed, and the water agency was releasing was draining the w- reservoir into the ocean, yeah. and so he got caught in the dra- in the drainage and actually drowns in fresh water. Yeah, because these people were a bunch of scum. Because they were a bunch of scuzzballs. They were trying to make the drought happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were they were really trying to to play up that this drought is going to cause problems, and the reason that they were doing that enter in Noah for Cross. money. Noah it's always Cross. for money. Yes, and um, basically Noah Cross helped found the waterworks with Mulray. Um, they were partners. They worked together, and shockingly enough, Noah Cross was. Hollis Mulray's father-in-law. Yeah. Well, and the interesting dynamic there is that uh, Mulray wanted the um, water, the waterworks, to be publicly owned. Right. He thought the city should own that, but Cross believed that it should be privately, privately owned, owned because Ching Ching, you know, lots and lots of money. money. So, you, when you find that dynamic out, you immediately understand. Well, Cross is a scumbag, and Mulray was a good guy. Well, and also, Mulray was trying very hard to keep people, was trying to protect Evelyn from Noah. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. Noah Cross was a very, very nasty man. Yeah, he raped his daughter. Multiple times. Yeah. And she had a child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that the girl that Giddis was actually photographing with Mulray was Evelyn's daughter. Right. Catherine. 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 She's my daughter. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister. Yeah, and he's like slapping her. Yeah. Giddis was interrogating her and like slapping her when she kept saying my daughter, my sister. Because he, he was convinced at that point that Mulray, she had killed Mulray. Yes. But also he he thought that she just couldn't pick 
a lie, and right. she was saying daughter, sister, daughter, sister, and then she's like, she's both, she's both, and he's just yeah. like, what? Yeah, and that that's when the movie gets really, I mean, through, through, through most of the movie, it's an interesting story about waterworks and deception and everything like that, but then you get to this point where it's like, oh my god. Well, there's really not much more that you can do in a film to make someone look immediately evil. Um, rape and incest. Yeah. And incestual rape, taking it to yeah. the, the, the highest degree. I mean, when you mur- when someone's murdered someone in a film, you know, people are like, oh, they're not a good person. Right. But that happens a lot in films. So when the rape portion or the incest or the incest rape comes into play, that's not used all that often. So that's even worse in people's mm-hmm. minds than murder. And also when... Noah meets Catherine. Oh my gosh. Because he tries to play it up as the loving grandfather. Yeah. You know. But it, it, it really comes off like real pervy. Yeah. And just like Well, from our, from our perspective. Because you already know Because you point. know that. Yeah, but I mean, exactly. if you're just watching it from, like, if, if you were someone on the street when this happened, um, then the idea that this guy is his... Her, is his is this girl's grandfather and wants to take care of her well that seems like an honorable thing mm-hmm. but you know this horrible thing about him and he pretty much walks around going yup I'm rich I can do whatever I want yeah, yeah. Um, well and he pretty much owns everything yeah he and he, everyone what he's been doing is he's been actually purchasing land in the names of a of people a, who are gonna die yeah people in a retirement or people home. who already die yes because that happened yeah at one because point. the uh the person that w- had actually passed away was jasper lamar crab who was a um a resident of a local nursing home and um he had passed away two weeks ago and one week after his passing purchased a bunch of land. He had purchased a bunch of land in the, in the um in the valley. Well, of course that's a red flag to get us. Oh yeah. He's like dead people can't wait zombies. Okay, yeah, no zombies. Yeah, no, no zombies in Dead this people movie. can't buy land. Yeah. In The Shining they might have been able to. But wow, um, but he his character in The Shining could have thought numerous things. He was going nuts. Yes. Well did. Yes. Um and so she the well I mean the thing is that it's it's really a, a cool moment when you find out when he's in the the public records. I love this movie for the for the private investigator angle of things. Yes, well, and that's yes, that's something I was gonna say earlier, and I forgot to say it, but you can say it at any point, really. Yeah, the adventure aspect. Yes, and I always always appreciate that in films, and I know I've said it in other podcasts for for this. Um, when you are going on an adventure and you don't know where it's going to take you next it's it keeps you glued it's it's so interesting it's so cool but even better with this film is how they effectively give you the the perspective of giddis and he doesn't know anything that you don't know you learn everything when he does whereas there are films that have the adventure aspect but your main character has prior knowledge or they get information before you, the audience, does. Right. 
I really like this format of yeah. you're getting it when he gets it. Well, and also one of the great things about the movie is that it uses a lot of long tracking shots where Giddis is walking in front of the camera. Right. Or he's driving in front of the camera or something like that. So you're you're essentially seeing from Giddis's perspective something new and interesting and is bringing you on the on, onto the the scene. And also you don't see any actual piece of film where Giddis is not somehow involved. He is always right. on screen one way or another. Well, it's like you the audience are actually doing the detective work with him. Right. Right. Which is so cool. It's very interactive, and it just makes people feel more invested. And also, it was really cool to see some of the tricks of the trade that they were using. Mm. Um, like the, I, I the was, watch. The, the watch. watch was awesome. The watch was fantastic. Um, another another fantastic... What, what happens with the watch That's is so that cool. Giddy's has a whole bunch of old pocket watches in his... Uh, the glove compartment of his of his car so what he does is whenever he's following someone and he wants to see what time they leave he coordinates the watch's time with his own timepiece and then he slides it under the tire so where it's not really visible but they'll run over it they'll stop the watch and he'll know exactly when they leave when that happened in the film i was like that is brilliant like i had never thought of that i would have never thought of that and it was so cool because he did it when he was at one of those beaches, um, when Mulray was at one of the beaches, and he put it under there. So then he was able to retrieve the broken watch, and he was like, uh, yep, he was there for X amount of hours. Right. Like, you can get it down to the minutes then, too. Yes, yes. Brilliant. Um, another thing that he did that was really smart was when he, at one point, he's going to he's going to track Evelyn. Because he wants to know where she's going. He knows that he has, that Evelyn has some kind of secret about Mulray. But she's not giving it up, uh, just willingly. So she's, he's, she gets a call in the middle of the night after they have um, sealed the, the contract. Coitus? Yes. He has yes. to sex it out of her. Yeah. All the secrets. Yeah. Um, and he does. Well, she, she's pretty cagey even at, at that point. Um, because, um, you know, she, she goes off to, to see Catherine, um, by herself. So what he does to track her is while she's in the shower, he sneaks down and he breaks the tail light of one of the, like the right hand tail light of her car. So it makes it easier to track, you know, and that to yeah. me, that was another really cool trick that I would have never thought of, um, in the age of analog detective work. Yeah. Another great one is in the in the Hall of Records when he's finding out about all of these land purchases and <laughs> he rips the page. Yeah, out. he does, but he he goes up to the world's most annoying clerk who okay, yeah. He was such a smart ass that clerk, but I loved it. Yeah. Like he was such a jackass and I was just like he's doing it really well. So yeah. whoever that actor was, good job. Yeah. And on top of that, I wonder if that was somehow some sort of commentary about government workers that they were trying to make. I, I think it was. I think, well, I think a lot of the movie is a commentary about how even small government can be very corrupt and oh, very much in the hands. Well, of, and it seems like in this film can be just real easily manipulated. Oh, yeah. As long as there's cash involved. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, but the great thing is that like when when he's going to grab these names, he they're not like yeah we don't check books out from this. This is the pu- hall of public records. It's not a lending library. So, yeah, and he's just like talking to him like you're an idiot. He's like, well, can I ha- can I see can I borrow a ruler? Do you notice like, he has pimples all over his face too? What the clerk? Yeah, yeah. He's probably just like a young college kid who yeah. can't get a, any better job. Except there's no colleges at this point in Los Angeles. So, um... Self-taught. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is pretty much his best hope for a job. Um, And And it looks boring. Yeah, it looks very boring. But he seems to enjoy it for the most part. I think he enjoys telling people off. Yeah, I was going to say the best part of his day is being an ass to people. Yeah. So, so... Um... Geddes gets this ruler, takes it back... And he's like, I, I need this because the print is small. I forgot my glasses. And then he pretends to cough really loud. And he just whoosh, rips out all of the information from the actual, like, the names of the, the purchasers. Which I thought was a pretty fun little moment of the film. So, yeah, I, I just thought that that aspect of the movie with the, the analog detective work, not just sitting in front of a computer and searching people's Facebook profiles, that was an interesting th- part of the movie. Well, and to me, I, I love the more witty ways to do things in film, and that's one of the reasons that I'm a James Bond fan, but I, I only like the older James Bonds because the gadgetry and the... The wits of James Bond back then were, it, it was so much better, it was so much richer. Yeah. And the sense of adventure with it was just so much better because the newer ones, it's like, okay, he's got all this crazy high tech stuff. Yeah. And he doesn't need to use his wits as much. And, you know, yeah, he just looks on Facebook and he's like, the bad guy just posted that he left his <laughs> lair. You know, stuff like that. And the real old one, you know, He's got, like, the pen with the cyanide in it yeah, or yeah, something, yeah, yeah. and it's just so much cooler because there was so much less to work with. Well, and also, I think the thing about Bond to remember is that it's a, sp- it's a spy movie, but it's also a fantasy movie. Mm-hmm. And when the, they, when you get into the 80s Bond with Roger Moore, they took it too far. With, I was okay with it still. <laughs> you were still okay with it? Like, it's I mean, just so cool. I don't yeah. know. I can't. I mean, I, I can't not love it. There, but but again, it's it, it it went. I think with Bond, it went from from fantasy to parody because it was parodying itself in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And then and then when you bring Daniel Craig back into the picture, um, I thought Pierce Brosnan's first. I thought Goldeneye was pretty good. I, his, I haven't seen the whole thing. Um, but <laughs> but but some of his others were a little less deserving. Um, but also, once you get into um, Daniel, Craig. Daniel Craig's Bond, just as an aside, we're getting back to Chinatown in a moment, I promise. <laughs> um, but it goes from the very high tech with with um, Casino Royale to a little bit lower tech. And then in the, the most recent Sky one, Skyfall, it pretty much strips everything away. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, I loved Skyfall. Yeah, actually, we I think should, it's because it's so reminiscent of the old school. James we should Bond. we we really should do Skyfall because it is on I, Netflix. Yeah, right? I believe it is. Um, so anyway, so Chinatown, Chinatown. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about like some of the the like the score and the practical effects and some of those things really fast because I thought the score was very interesting in this movie um, because it starts. I, I love how the music, for the most part, there's not a lot of it and. Um, I think I've talked about how 
well, we I know we talked about in um, our review of Beyond the Black Rainbow how the sc- music can be used as as story spackling, right. you know, just like coding over areas that would be boring otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this movie, the score is so sparse right. that it really... I didn't notice that there was a lack of music for most of the movie. I didn't either. Um, but for me, sometimes having sparse music can really destroy a film. It can. But sometimes it can really enhance a film. And in the case like Chinatown, yeah. it enhances the film because... It allows more mystery and tension to build, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. When you're not instructing people on how to feel through the music, you're giving people more time to think. And you really need that in a movie like this. But you're also, what you're doing is losing your thought. Well, like me, because I just lost my thought. Well, I, what, what, what I was going to say about the music is that it, when it when it's supposed to be really tense music, there is it's very minimalist, but there's a lot of percussion and everything, mm-hmm. um, which gives it a real like tense feel to it. But then also the only other real scenes that I can remember the music being used in is after Giddis has been with Evelyn in a romantic sense. Um, after they have sex, then the music comes in. It's really lazy. It's kind of just, it's floating over the, the thing. And it's giving this air of, because um, you don't see the actual sex scene happen. But right. it gives this, this... But you see boobs afterwards. You do see boobs. Um, Which has become pretty much mandatory for films. Yes. And I think the boobs are the only reason the film gets an R rating, honestly. Probably. Um, well, the nose... The nose... The nose cutting, there was some blood squirt and, you know, that maybe. Yeah. And, and you do see Mulray's dead body and it doesn't look too nice. No, it doesn't. But um, what I was going to say is that the music actually implies the sex. Right. Which is is really interesting. Also, the same music that's used to imply the sex is the opening theme behind the the opening credits. You know, so it kind of ties in how, you know, the, the beginning of the movie... And it's almost like this: the sex is a personal achievement for Guinness in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Probably because at the beginning of the movie, he had been forced out of law enforcement because he had gotten too close to somebody and they had died. And so you bring back this music now from the beginning of the movie to show that he's moved past that. And then at the end of the movie, Evelyn dies in Chinatown where... Where it had happened the first time. Because it can never end well for anyone. This was just like, it's like the apocalypse almost, within the world of the film. Yes. You know, like, nothing's good, everyone's corrupt, nobody cares. You know, Evelyn gets shot because she shoots... Well, first of all, the police believe Evelyn is the one who killed Mulray. And for quite some time, uh, the audience would believe that it was Evelyn as well. So they did a really good job with the script and with their directorial choices in convincing the audience that she did it until you find out, oh, it was actually Noah Cross who did it. And then, you know, the police still believe that she did it and they catch up with her and she shoots Noah because Noah's trying to take Catherine. Right. Essentially to be his new sex toy. Yeah. That guy's... He just, in that scene, maybe it's just because you know what he's done. 
he is like total predator mode. Yeah. You know, like oh, he just man. seems like a disgusting predator. And, and, and the great thing is like he says to Ke- to Evelyn, she's mine too and yeah. I don't have a lot of years left. Yuck. Oh my god. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Ugh. But then um you know, she she shoots him and then she starts speeding away. Right. And then the police shoot at her because they're like, "Well, she's the the killer and she just shot someone else." This nice affluent man in the area, and they shoot after her, and they end up killing her. And then while everyone goes and looks at her dead body, and Catherine's screaming in the passenger seat, Noah just slips in like a snake it's and just like her. extracts Catherine. And is like, here, you're coming with me. Peace out. And like nobody even seems to notice. And you're watching as a member of the audience, just like, uh, somebody do something. Stop this. Stop. Stop. But nobody's paying attention. It's crazy. But also, I, w- I do want to point out with how they did the death scene yes. for Evelyn was great. Oh, my God. The fact that you're seeing, you see the car go into the distance, and it's dark, yeah. so you can't see it too well, but it's a light-colored car, so you see a little bit of it. And they signal her being shot and dying by the horn of the car just being laid on. And also, the horn, the car just starts drifting. Yeah, because that it was too. driving a yep. purpose, and then all of a sudden the horn starts going, and then it starts drifting, and then about three seconds into this, you just start hearing somebody start screaming, and it's Catherine screaming. Yeah. And I really like that because it allowed enough downtime for people to one figure out what happened, two let it sink in, and three it wasn't done in the typical in your face way, which. I really like when you can find a different way to deliver something like that, like a death. Like, you don't always have to show it straight up. Sometimes it's a lot more powerful when you don't show it. Yeah. When you allude to something. Yes. And in this case, I thought it was extremely well done. That was one of my favorite moments of the film because I thought it was a very strong choice. So. And also, one of the things that I wanted to talk about with, with that scene is how the cops are trying to, to shoot... Evelyn, Giddy's thinks that Escobar is actually going to hit her, so he jumps Giddy. He jumps, Giddy's jumps Escobar. Yeah, but it's really the partner who shoots her. Yep. You know, and so Giddy's is so focused on, you know, making sure that Escobar is taken care of that he completely forgets about this. So I'm wondering if there is some kind of implied thing that Escobar actually had stopped Giddy's. From being able to save mm. his prior paramour. Oh, that's an interesting thought. You know? Could be right on that. So he's like, he's trying to stop the person who had caused him to fail before. And in doing that, he fails even more in the same place he had he had lost previously. So when everything's said and done, there's just, you know, Giddy's just kind of standing there like dumbstruck. Just kind of like, uh, and then someone grabs him and is just basically like, is it Mulvihill that grab that grabs him? Is kind of escorting him away. Was that him? Yeah, it's it's his uh, it's his associates. Yeah, they were just escorting him away, and they're just like, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Yeah, and the reason- as if it's like in this part of the <laughs> in this city, nothing matters. Well, like just everything's lawless. Just forget it. And also, I mean, the thing I think that or that reflects like two or three things. Earlier in the movie, Evelyn had asked him where he had served as a cop, and he told her Chinatown. And she's like, well, what did you do there? And he said, as little as possible. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Because because they didn't, they just 
didn't really care about that part of the town, it seemed like. Um, partially, I think, for racially motivated reasons. Also, it could have been that the district attorney for that part was actually corrupt. Right. Um, everyone's corrupt. Everyone is corrupt. Um, and, but also, I think Giddy's replied that way because he had been burned in Chinatown before. Yeah. So he was like, look, I don't even want to think about it. I, I've kind of blocked that part of the of, of what has happened in my life from my mind. And then he's forced back into it. Well, it, it, it's like confronting his inner demons. Yeah. You know, and that's one thing that I loved about with his nose being cut and him wearing this bandage for the movie. He's hiding, you know, the ugliness behind this bandage. Um, so then when he has sex with Evelyn, he takes the bandage off because he's opened up to somebody else. Right. And then he goes still wounded, showing his wound to the world. And then that that emotional bandage that he had over what had happened in Chinatown is ripped off again when Evelyn is killed. Mm-hmm. And just that attitude, the, you know, it's, it's Chinatown attitude yeah. at the end. It It's... The exclamation point on what's echoed throughout the whole film with pretty much everyone in the film is, I'm not getting my hands dirty. I'm not getting involved in this. I kind of don't really care. Pretty much everyone yeah. in the film. Except for Giddis. Yeah. It's it, nuts. It, which is weird because Giddis is not a very likable character, but he's the only one who wants to do something that's responsible. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, do you think go, we've covered this all right? I, I, think, I think, yeah, I think we've done a pretty good job with Chinatown. All right. Well... Sir, you, if you will, you sure. can take the lead on this one. Um, I, I, I just I love this movie for a lot of reasons. First off, I'm, if it hasn't come off before, I'm a huge fan of noir, just in general. I noticed this is the second one you've picked. Yeah, um, and it'll um, be like me with horror films, you with noir films. Well, I, I love I love crime movies. Um, I love science fiction movies. I love historical thrillers. I love movies. Nice. Um, but, but noir has a special place in my life. Um, because I've always, it has the most interesting camera techniques and the interesting use of shadow and everything like that. So I always enjoy that kind of thing. Also, I think that the exploration of human psyche in noir movies is probably the most realistic and hits me home the hardest, just in my, my personal you know, view of the world. Um, Everyone's a scumbag. <laughs> well, yeah, but there's always somebody who wants to do the right thing. <clears throat> yeah, it's like a whole city of scumbags and one good person within that city. Yeah, that's how Jordan views every city. I don't know if he's I'm, looking for the one good person when he's there. I, I well, I want to think that everybody is is a good person, but uh, most often uh, you're, you're proved otherwise. Yeah, you are let down. Yeah, it's like my grandfather. Um, rest in peace, Pete. Our Lowell Pete Roush, uh, he had a great quote. Um, Most people aren't much. Right. That's his quote, and yeah. that's a pretty accurate quote. Oh, it is, and that can easily easily be applied to Chinatown. Yeah, but you know, just because of the because of the old fashioned private detective work in the movie, and also the the motivation behind what's happening is a very real life thing. It's not that data is being stolen or like a jewel heist or something like that. It's a very real thing. Water is something everybody needs. And you're holding water right oh, now. Oh, yeah. I've got, a, I've got a glass of water right here in my hand. Um, everyone needs it, including Jordan. Exactly. So that, to me, because the commodity is such a real and needy thing that anybody can relate to, um, because the emotions in the movie of 
not wanting to get your hands dirty, but willing to take a chance, you know, and to open yourself up to, to after you've been hurt so badly in the past. I really identify with this movie in a lot of ways. I love the cinematography of it. Um, I love the score. Um, there's just so much to lo- to like about the movie. Like I said, I'm not a huge Nicholson fan. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few movies I actually think he does well in. Uh, what's her name? Um, Faye Dunaway. Dunaway, yes. I thought it was Dunaway. I just didn't want to misquote. I, I think she does a fantastic job. Um, and, and Houston does a fantastic job as well. Mm-hmm. Um, th- so great cast, great directing. Overall, this is a four-star movie in my opinion. Four stars, nice. Yeah. Um, for me, the film was good in the adventure aspect of it. I think the cinematography was well handled. There were a lot of smart directorial choices. The script was well done. Uh, the acting was good. The music was not too much and not too little. You know, it was pretty much in the middle. Compelling enough story to to keep you to keep you glued to it. But, you know, it's not, it, it wasn't like my favorite film. It didn't totally blow me away, but I was, I was happy with it. Uh, I think it was definitely, for me, worth seeing once. So I give it three stars. So that gives an overall three and a half for the podcast. So much better than our recent reviews. Yeah. We needed something like this yes. to bounce back on. Yes. And um, our next podcast will be something that I go nuts i'm I'm looking forward to if if me and the avengers is (laughs) then our next review is going to be carlin doing the same kind of thing hopefully hopefully we shall see so well we wanted to say thanks very much for listening to carlin and jordan's most excellent movie night uh leave us a review on itunes send us an email uh we've had some really great suggestions of Johnny, one of our friends, uh, and if you listen to Bone Thrower's Theater, you're familiar with Johnny. He had this suggestion where we go back and we choose a genre. He said specifically Disney animations, but I think this could work with any genre. Definitely. Watch an old movie from that particular genre and then watch a newer movie and then compare the two. Yeah. Which I think it, uh, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. It really is. And we're going to have to do that in the near future. Old horror versus new horror. Yeah. That'd be cool. And we can just take one episode... And, you know, say it's it's a twofer. You know, we got two films in it, one old, one new, and let's break it down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are those can be, like, special episodes. Yeah, I think that, that would have to be a special episode. Yeah. Uh, but um, it definitely can be done. So thanks very much to Johnny for that, that really yeah. great suggestion. And you, too, can have your name on the podcast if you send us in suggestions. Or an even better way to have it on the podcast with some words of encouragement or... Uh, criticism or whatever you're feeling, you can send us an email at uh, most excellent movie night at gmail.com and say what you want to say. Yeah. Say you were totally off base on one thing, you were right on on another thing. Um, I hate you guys, I love you guys. Yeah. Uh, or just give us your own analysis quickly of a film we've already done. Yeah, and we'd be loved. We'd uh, we'd be loved. We'd love to include that in in like a uh, special recording session. All right. Well, I think we pretty much covered everything that we can here. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for listening to our review of Chinatown. Talk to you next time.
You've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio. To find more royalty-free music for your own projects, check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. And special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art. Visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes, give us your opinion, and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed. You can also contact us through our email address, mostexcellentmovienight.com at gmail.com. We would love to read them on the air. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, we would be your friends for life. For sure. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night, where movies are most excellent. This has been a Nerd Circle Podcast production. 